Well, I can't tell you how good it is to be back together, especially as a preacher, no longer preaching into a camera, but having, I mean, you're able to see me on TV, a place that I'm very uncomfortable of being located, but, you know, I haven't been able to see you, so, uh, like, I'm just going to take this this moment uh, to be truly grateful, especially on Pentecost Sunday, that we could, I mean, the Spirit was poured out upon all of us, and we get to celebrate uh, that together uh, today. Give you an idea where we're going in our sermon series. We're going to continue through the Gospel of John through July, and, and then uh, we'll see where to go after that. In medieval iconography, the icon that they commonly used to designate John the Gospel writer uh, was, of all things, an eagle. Um, commonly, you'll see um, you know the, the drawn picture of John, and there will be an eagle on his shoulder. Or sometimes there'll just simply be the eagle and then the words uh, written in Latin, you know, the gospel, the, uh, the gospel of John, you know, etc. And uh, this was to express the predominant belief among the early church fathers that John wrote a spiritual gospel, which has a loftier spiritual purpose than the other gospels. John is considered an eagle because he soars above uh, Aloft in the sky to contemplate the, the sublime truths of uh, sublime spiritual truths, while the other gospel writers are more land animals, preoccupied with the more mundane aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, you may never have heard John is an eagle before, but if you, if you think about it, that assessment that John's gospel is more spiritual than the rest is still a, a fairly commonly held perspective today. And in truth, it's it's a bit misleading because, as one author writes, far from being the work of an eagle who hovers mystically over the earth, you know, John is, of all the Gospels, the most contentious. There are more fights uh, between John and his opponents. John records more arguments and more intense arguments between, rather, Jesus and his opponents than all the other Gospels combined. His Jewish opponents frequently bring charges against Jesus. They put Jesus on trial, only to find, uh, in the end, how Jesus repeatedly turns the tables on them, and he ends up putting them on trial. Now, the reason I mention this is it's actually quite important as background for these words that he speaks to his disciples in John 16, verse 1, regarding the Holy Spirit. John 16, 1, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is good, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. 
in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. And does it go through, yeah, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think we go through different phases as Christians uh, in how we relate to the Holy Spirit. Some of the maybe less flattering phases we have been through. Sometimes we relate to the Holy Spirit kind of like the, the way we, we relate to our appendix or our pituitary gland. Like we know it's there. We know it serves some essential function. And we rarely think about it except in extreme cases. And in the same way, like we know the Holy Spirit's there and he's in us, but he's not. I mean, he's not this dynamic, moving person with whom we interact with on a, on a daily basis. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, if that's neglect, uh, I think I've told you about the time when the Holy Spirit told, told me that I was not to speed. Um, as in, I was not to drive a single mile an hour over the speed limit. Uh, I was about 20 at the time, I'm living in Phoenix, Arizona, driving down the expressway in the left-hand lane, exactly at 55 miles an hour, uh, just a, a, a moving death trap, you know, waiting to happen. And all of my fellow uh, drivers, you know, they were really appreciative of the fact that, that I had heard from the Spirit and I was obeying Him. But sometimes we relate, we, we're on that other ex, extreme, like we relate to the Spirit as though they're these special um, mystical communications that he makes with us, or he, uh, he, he's, he gives us meaning about strange and fortuitous events that take place outside of us. Well, John's not talking about that. <laughs> the word that John uses for the Holy Spirit in verse 7, you notice I translated it as advocate. And in the Greek, the word is paraclete. Now, we're fortunate living at the time that we do we just have so much more in the, in, in the way of first century literature to help us understand what words meant back then. Uh, we have an enormous body of you know, early, like 1 BC, you know, uh, you know, 100 years before the birth of Christ, 100 years after the birth of Christ. And what we find, the scholars find, is that in first century literature, this was primarily used as a legal term. Um, it, you know, we say, is the Holy Spirit more like a therapist or a lawyer? Most Christians would, would definitely say he's a therapist. And if you think, if you notice, almost all of our Holy Spirit songs, all of them, talk about the Spirit as a comforter. But part of the reason they do that is because that's how the King James Version, that's how they understood it back in the, what, 16th century. But they, they didn't know that, in fact, that it's actually a legal term. And the idea here is that the paraclete is an advocate for our defense. So the paraclete, the spirit, is the one who stands up in the law court during the trial and he speaks on our behalf in order to secure our acquittal. And I think then 
if you look at verse 1, you see how it all fits, how it relates to what is going on in the Gospel of John. Because Jesus has just warned his disciples, they're going to be persecuted. They're, they're going to be put onto trial. They are going to be excommunicated from the synagogues. He's told them that the world will condemn them. Uh, the world will be against them. Satan will condemn them. But then he, Jesus assures them that the Holy Spirit will stand up on their behalf in the heavenly law court where God is the judge, the Spirit will stand up and speak on their behalf in order that they would be vindicated before the judge of heaven and earth. So yes, uh, we might say that the Holy Spirit indirectly is a comforter because it's extremely comforting to have a, a million-dollar attorney in your corner, right? But indirectly, that's, that's what's going on. And it's not normally the way we think about the Holy Spirit, but it fits it fits entirely well with all that's going on in John's gospel. And that's one of the roles of the Spirit in the Christian's life. So what about the situation? How does the Spirit work in the lives of people who are not yet Christians? I don't know if you've ever been called to, to the stand in a trial and you've had to undergo a cross-examination by another attorney. I've never experienced that, but I've heard it's a, it's a fairly uncomfortable uh, moment in your life. I mean, they're just asking, peppering you with questions, question after question, trying to poke holes in your story and trying to trip you up. Well, if you reverse the metaphor, if the spirit in the believer's life is like this awesome Perry Mason defense attorney, um, the spirit in somebody's life who's not yet a Christian, he comes as, as a cross-examining attorney. Uh, and this is where the metaphor breaks down a little bit because it's not like the Spirit is out to get you. It's not like the Spirit is trying to trip you up and, and paint this false picture about you. No, it says in verse 8 that the Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I mean, what, what, that, what does that mean? It just means that he wants you to understand sin and righteousness and judgment. So what the Holy Spirit does is he opens our eyes to the fact that there is a court in session right now in heaven. And just as Lady Justice, how is she always depicted down here on earth? And in the statues of Lady Justice, she's blindfolded which speaks to her impartiality. In her left hand, she's always holding scales, which is evaluating the evidence of guilt and innocence. And in her right hand is what? It's always a sword of judgment. And she is, was, in the whole Judeo-Western uh, Judeo tradition, she is meant to be em emblematic of the court that is going on in heaven, the, the perfect court that is in session in heaven. And the Holy Spirit, he, is, he comes to convict you or, or to open your eyes to the fact that we, we have all been found wanting, like so wanting. We have all treated our creator with contempt. We have all had long periods in our lives where we have ignored God and we, none of us have lived up to the moral dictates that he has given. In fact, none of us has lived up to even the moral dictates that we've given ourselves. We're just a bundle of contradictions. Uh, and so this is the job of the Spirit to expose that. We've all been exposed. 
We've all been exposed. That is the title of a poem that uh, a pastor friend of mine in our presbytery sent me this week. It's written by Sarah Burns. You can look it up if you wish later today. We've all been exposed, but we've all been exposed with a twist. Now follow me. Here's how the poem begins. Coronavirus is exposing us. It is exposing our weak sides, exposing our dark sides, exposing what normally lays far beneath the surface of our souls, hidden by the invisible masks we wear. Now exposed by the paper mask, we can't hide far enough behind. Corona is exposing our addiction to comfort, our obsession with control, our compulsion to hoard, our protection of self. It is peeling back our layers and exposing the gods we worship, our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trust. Corona is exposing me. My mindless numbing, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. We have all been exposed, our junk laid bare, our fears made known, the band-aid torn, the masquerade done. So what now? What's left? Just the need for clean eyes, clear eyes, tender hearts. Now that hit me because... Yeah, coronavirus has exposed me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, have, I don't know that I have gone through two months of my life where I've struggled more with anger um, with everybody and everything, particularly my, my family. But um, I suspect that I'm probably not the only person out here who's discovered that, that, that just during this, like some pretty terrible things have bubbled up to the surface. And really, what the Spirit can do is take situations like this and open our eyes and make us look at it. We talk a lot, of, you see, um, posted a lot about, don't turn away, don't turn away, look. One of the things the Spirit does is He makes us turn and look at it. And we don't like to look at it. We, lo- we love to look at es- exposés on big governments and big corporations and celebrities that show, ab- show all the terrible things they've done. We just don't like exposés on ourselves. <laughs> but the Spirit's work is to just make you look at it. Here's another way uh, to think of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Imagine you're in college and you live in a house with some buddies, um, but you never clean the house. Yeah. This happened, this was true of my college house. So one of my college roommates, he had a dog. Jed had a dog. And I kid you not, the dog would just go around the house. The dog didn't go in the yard. We'll put it that way. The dog went in the house. And I, I, was, I lived in one of those houses that it was just the, the ultimate bachelor pad. There was a there was a toilet on the front yard of, of, of our house. Um, so I can relate to this illustration. It's a disaster, but, but you know what? You've invited your girlfriend over for a, a romantic candlelight dinner. She knocks on the door, and the lights are dimmed very low. <laughs> They're just a couple of candles on the table. And so you sit down, and, and 
It's a very sweet, very romantic, sort of perfect evening until your, your roommate stumbles in. He didn't know that you're having a dinner, a dinner. He stumbles into the room and he flicks on the lights and, oh no, not that. You know, cockroaches are screwing up the wall. Your girlfriend looks down and the floor is moving because there are mice and stuff crawling out of used pizza boxes. And she sees the pigsty you were living in and, and so do you. I think that's a great parable for like the human heart, man, mankind's heart. We do, we'll, we'll light two candles and we'll call it all good. But it's the role of the spirit to shine a bright light. And when he does, we say, oh man, I have been, I've been living in this mess. You know, the work of the spirit is, is to turn the light on and to, to convict us of sin and of righteousness, that God's righteous standard is definitely not being met in me. And, and I already said it, the fact that we are just all, uh, we are all a bundle of contradictions. A bundle of contradictions. We donate to the disaster relief fund and then we underreport our taxes. We shovel our elderly neighbor's uh, driveway out of a snowstorm and, and then we cheat our employers out of an honest 40-day work week. We give our time to the local PTA and then we have an affair on our spouse and we cheat on, on them and our kids too, essentially. And the work of the Holy Spirit is when people, when people, again, when people look and realize that I am a mess. Jesus says in the passage that the greatest sin, the, the greatest sin that we commit is when we refuse to believe in God's Son who was sent to rescue us. You know, earlier in the service, Joe read from uh, Acts 2, the first day of Pentecost, where Peter stands up and he, he delivers his famous Pentecost sermon. And during that sermon, it says that they were convicted. They were convicted that they were not righteous, that they had sinned greatly in not believing in Jesus and that they had been utterly mistaken what it means to be righteous before God. We read in verse Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, that the sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brother, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thousands of them became genuine Christians. So here's what I'd like you to do. The question, this is not a preacher gotcha question, and this is not a rhetorical device. An honest question to ask yourself. Have you ever been cross-examined by God? Have you ever had the sensation of, of someone, um, maybe not in some force inside of you, not accepting your excuses, poking holes in your weak justifications, making you sweat, flipping the lights on and letting you see. You know, most people, when they talk about a spiritual experience, I mean, whenever you hear anybody talk about a spiritual experience, it's all buttercups and daisies. But really, the, the very first true spiritual experience the majority of human beings will have, it will be when the, the Spirit cuts them to the heart and they realize that I got nothing. I just absolutely got nothing. I got nothing. And that God is, 
that this is God's message for me. <laughs> you know what, uh, Solzhenitsyn, one of the guys I think quoted it a few weeks ago, but the dividing line of good and evil runs through every human heart. It's not out there, it's right here. And this is God's message for me. Well, moving on briefly, uh, and I know it's hot out there, so I'll, I'll keep it moving on quickly. Briefly look with me at verse 12, because I, I haven't hit on all of the rules of the Holy Spirit, and I won't, but Jesus gives us one more rule here. He's called the Spirit of Truth. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The you here clearly being the 12 apostles. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you, the 12 apostles. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that's why I said the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. This means that the Spirit is responsible for the truths that were communicated to the apostles, the truths that they preached, and the truths that they, in time, wrote down in the New Testament. And so the Spirit guided them in writing the New Testament. And, and that's what, exactly what Jesus was predicting here in 12 through 15. Sometimes people are like, well, how do you know the New Testament is, is really the Bible? Well, this is part of how you know. It's because Jesus said this would happen. He would take what was, what was the Father's, what was his, and he would give it to those 12, and they would write it down. And now the Spirit works to reveal the truth of that to us. Um, and the word of God. So he is the, the spirit, he's the advocate, and he is the spirit of truth, and he is the spirit of peace. I didn't know that uh, Joe was going <laughs> to talk about the Minneapolis prayer of John Piper, because um, I was going to tell you about it, but <laughs> steal my thunder, buddy. <laughs> but really, you ought to go onto the Desiring God website and look up the sorrows of Minneapolis. It is so beautiful. It is so powerful, that, that prayer. I mean, he's praying, he's ministered, lived in Minneapolis nearly his whole life, ministered there. Just listen to how a, a, a mature, godly man prays for his city. Um, I want you to also consider this quote I came across. This is a theologian writing in 2006. So he's not making a, a contemporary statement about America. He's not... He's not reading the newspaper and, and trying to make some kind of spiritual commentary. But, but if you hear this, listen how true this rings. It, it hit me. Satan sows discord, flames the rivalries and animosities among persons that can blow up into social crisis, and then encourages the persecutory sacrifices by which communities beat down and manage those conflicts. The paraclete... The paraclete is the anti-Satan. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, but the Holy Spirit is an advocate with the abandoned victims when all turn against them in fury. Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies, but the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. Truth that pierces the veil of violence. Satan incites violence. The Holy Spirit nurtures peace and unity to resist the conflicts that lead to persecutory sacrifice. Have you considered, you probably have, but what we are watching on TV is, it is satanic. 
It is satanic. It is Satan sowing discord through injustice and racism and subsequent violence and intractable conflict. That's what psychologists call what is happening in America right now. It's a technical term. Look it up. Intractable conflict, which is a kind of divide America is currently, currently experiencing. It's very similar to basically if you look at world events, one out of every 20 major you know, ethno-political feuds in the world become intractable conflicts. That is that people's encounters with the other tribe, be it political, religious, or ethnic, become all-out wars because they can no longer listen to each other or find any common ground with each other. They become all-out wars. And it is all satanic. Brothers and sisters, that's why we desperately need on this Pentecost Sunday to pray for the spirit of peace to descend upon our nation. The spirit of truth, the spirit of justice, and the spirit of peace. Let me conclude with a few direct applications. For those of us, the majority of us are Christians here today. We should pray for our friends and family members and our loved ones, the people who we know Uh, that the spirit of peace would descend upon them in particular. Because if you listen to so many of them, they are either afraid or they are angry as hell. And we need the spirit of peace to descend upon them. We should pray that justice would be done and people would be treated with equity. And we should pray for our loved ones who do not know Jesus yet, that the spirit of God would be an advocate would be a cross-examining attorney who does not give up on them until they look. And I also want you to remember this, because this is so important. That is the role of the paraclete. You and I, we are not the paraclete. Like you are not, we are not the cross-examining attorney. That, that is the Holy Spirit's Role. We are not the prosecuting attorney. We're certainly not the judges. And the last time I checked, God hasn't commissioned any of us to be prophets to our nation. Have you been given the mantle of Elijah to be a prophet to America? I doubt it. Um, we are simple. If we, we're not prosecutors, what are we then? We are simply witnesses. That's what we're called. We are called to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Spirit's continuing work in our life. And so what I'm not telling you, I'm not saying shut up and never speak. What I'm saying is tell your own story about how what you discovered about yourself and your own sin and how you heard the truth about yourself and you embraced it, difficult as it was to hear, and how you fled for refuge to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen? Tell them that story. Like, don't link to 15 different news articles. Tell them that story, that I fled to Jesus for refuge and how the Spirit is gradually, slowly, but gradually transforming me. When I read most of what Christians post on the internet, I believe they are doing far more harm than good. That they are trying to do the work of a prosecuting attorney against non-Christians, but they don't have the Holy Spirit, the paraclete's wisdom or skill in doing so.